Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. All right, well, I'm, uh, I want to continue to preach some sermons that I found in this book. When everything's on fire, faith forged from the ashes. I found there's some good material in there that I can preach, so I think I want to keep doing that today. And uh, I'm going to start in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 5. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. In Genesis, the new day doesn't begin at sunrise or at midnight as we think about it, but strangely enough, at sunset. Reflecting this, the Jewish Sabbath does not begin at sunrise on Saturday, but at sundown on Friday. We always are very aware of this when we're in Jerusalem. And sundown on Friday comes and Shabbat has arrived. And the streets empty out and all of the stores and all of the restaurants are all closed because Shabbat has arrived with sundown. Each new day, thus, begins with a new darkness. Newness is not heralded by the rising of the sun, but by enfolding darkness. This is definitely counterintuitive. The new day does not begin with being able to see. The new day begins with being unable to see. Newness is born in nothingness. And darkness is the canvas for the new light of creation. Now, in our spiritual pilgrimage through life, we discover that dark nights come before new dawns. This is good news for a troubled soul going through the darkness of what some might call deconstruction. A dark night of the soul does not have to be the end of faith, but can be the beginning of a new journey that leads deeper into the mystery of God. Our spiritual progress does not begin with a new day of knowing, but often spiritual progress begins with a dark night of unknowing. Abraham. Abraham's journey is in the scripture, the archetype of the journey of faith. Abraham is given to us as the patriarch of faith, the father of faith, the progenitor of faith. I mean, we look at Abraham and go, oh, that's what faith is like. Abraham is the one who, he's in Ur, he's like everybody else. He has all kinds of wrong ideas about God. You cannot help but have wrong ideas about God when you live in Ur of the Chaldees. But God calls him, to come out of Ur and go on a journey 
to a place he's never been. And we're told that Abraham went out by faith not knowing where he was going. That's hard to launch out from the known into the unknown. Takes, what's the word I want? Faith. Takes faith to go from the known into the unknown. Now as Abraham journeys from the idolatry of Ur into the unknown where he will eventually find a new covenant in Canaan. It marks the first westward journey in the Bible. In the early pages of Genesis, every migration is eastward. And in the symbolism of those early pages of Genesis, this represents a journey away from God. Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden east of Eden. Cain, after murdering his brother, departs from the presence of the Lord eastward into the land of Nod. Following the flood, humanity migrates eastward into the land of Shinar where they build the Tower of Babel. But now Abraham, called by God, out of her to go to a place he's never been to journey into the unknown begins to journey from Ur to Canaan it's a journey westward go west old man we're moving in a new direction and Abraham's journey of newness is one of the great pivotal points in the salvation story of the Bible. I mean, this is a big moment. I mean, it's a long way until we get to Jesus, his virgin birth, his crucifixion, his resurrection. But it's definitely connected with this old man going west and saying, I'm going to go by faith into the unknown. I'm going to go on a new, everybody's going east these days. I'm going west. But here's the thing, a journey westward is a journey into the land of the setting sun. A journey westward is a journey toward darkness. And we instinctively, all of us, we instinctively fear darkness. I mean, who among us? I mean, all of us, at least as children, and maybe not just as children. We fear the dark. And so because we fear the dark... We might want to say, you know, I don't think I want to go toward that newness because I, I'm comfortable where I am. I want to stay where, where I already know some things. I want to stay with what I know. And that's why complacency, not doubt, is the greatest enemy of spiritual development. In George MacDonald's fantasy novel, Lilith, which I just dearly love, I've read it three times and listened to it once. It's, it's very strange. It's very mysterious, but I find it quite edifying. And George MacDonald's, you know, this is the guy that C.S. Lewis said was his mentor, his master, George MacDonald. George MacDonald's Lilith is about a man named Mr. Vane. He's also the narrator of the story. And the story is really about Mr. Vane's redemption, Mr. Vane's salvation. 
Mr. Vane, stuck in his vanity, has to somehow find salvation. That's what the story is about, although it's very symbolic in the form of a fantasy novel. Well, in the, in the story, Mr. Vane encounters a mysterious Mr. Raven as his spiritual guide. Mr. Raven often appears as a raven, but sometimes he appears as an old librarian. And Mr. Raven has come to Mr. Vane to lead him on a soul-saving salvation into another world. He has to go to another world. It's like Abraham. Abraham couldn't find salvation in Ur. He had to go somewhere else. And Mr. Vane can't stay where he is and find salvation. He's got to journey to another world. But Mr. Vane is hesitant to embark upon such a strange journey. The second time that Mr. Raven comes to visit Mr. Vane at his home, their conversation goes like this. Now we should be going, said the raven, and stepped to the front porch. Going where, I asked. Going where we have to go, he answered. You did not surely think you had got home. I told you there was no going out and in at pleasure until you were at home. I do not want to go, I said. That does not make any difference, at least not much, he answered. This is the way. I am quite content where I am. You think so, but you are not. Come along. The wise Mr. Raven knows that Mr. Vane's true home was a place where he'd not yet been. Come on now. Abraham's true home was not Ur, even though he'd called it home all of his life. His true home is way off in the west in Canaan, but he's never been there. We think we are content in our settled certitude because we don't know what we don't know. Our ignorance is bliss. Our satisfaction is sedation. We're content with life in Ur, filled with idols and wrong ideas about God because we've never been anywhere else or known anywhere else. So God in his mercy sends us a Mr. Raven, a guide to help us find our way home, a place yet unknown. We all have to go on a spiritual journey because we're all born a long way from home. At times the journey home leads through dark places, but that doesn't mean we're lost. Sometimes the best map will not guide you. You can't see what's around the bend. Sometimes the road leads through dark places. Sometimes the darkness is your friend. The dark night of unknowing doesn't mean you've gone wrong, even though it may feel like it. You begin to move into something new and you think, I don't, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm so unsure of myself. Where's this all headed? I used to have it all figured out and now I don't know. And that's disconcerting. Well, these are the normal thoughts of those that often, these are the normal thoughts that arise in, in those that uh, are making genuine spiritual progress. If you want to make real spiritual progress, the dark night of unknowing is una unavoidable. Now, unknowing has two meanings. There's the unknown, that is, that which is not known. But then there's the 
unknown of unknowing. You know, and then you have to unknow it. That's the harder one. I mean, the unknown of the not known is not easy. That's easy to deal with. Then, then you know something. Oh, okay. I just didn't know, and now I do. But the unknown of, I know this. Oh, I have to unknow this now because I was wrong. That's the harder unknowing, isn't it? It's not the learning that's hard. It's the unlearning that's hard. Abraham's journey of unknowing was mostly about not knowing and then coming to know. But Paul's journey, Paul the apostle, who we first meet as Saul of Tarsus, Paul's journey of unknowing was mostly about unknowing. Acts chapter 9, verse 1, meanwhile... Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples, the Lord went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Saul of Tarsus. He was a Bible scholar, you know. Trained at the feet of Gamaliel in Jerusalem. Born in Tarsus, raised in Jerusalem. Had an elite education in Torah studies. Saul of Tarsus was a Bible scholar and he belonged to the Pharisee party and he was the most devout of the Pharisees and as most Pharisees are, he was a zealous practitioner of religious certitude. He knew what he knew and he knew he was right and he knew that what he knew is the only thing to know. And his zeal... Once he became aware of this strange new sect called the Way, who had the audacity to make the absurd claim that a crucified Galilean was in fact the Messiah, well, he did what he had to do. You got to root that stuff out. Paul knows, well, let's call him Saul. Saul knows, he knows that that can't be true. There's, there's no way a crucified man can be the Messiah because the Bible says so. Deuteronomy 21, 23, a man hung upon a tree is cursed by God. He's got his Bible verse. He just flips it right there, it's right there, it's right there. Deuteronomy 21, 23. A man hung upon a tree is cursed by God. So Saul of Tarsus is convinced that it's impossible for Jesus of Nazareth to be the Messiah. And yet there's this sect. 
that's springing up in certain synagogues that are saying that Jesus of Nazareth is the crucified and risen Messiah. And so in his zeal, he's going to root that out. Zeal, that's his key word. He's zealous. Now zeal, especially in the Old Testament, is generally connected with violence in the name of God. Zeal is a synonym in the Old Testament, pretty much, for violence wrought in the name of God. This is Phineas, who slays that Hebrew and his Moabite mistress. And we're told that his zeal was reckoned unto him as righteousness. And then we see it repeated in other lives. Saul, son of Kish. Jehu had great zeal for the Lord. It was manifest in violence enacted in the name of God. And Saul of Tarsus carries on this tradition. He was present lending rabbinic approval at the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And this seems to ignite in him a great violent passion against the way. And he ransacks all of these synagogues in Jerusalem to find anybody that confesses that Jesus is Lord. And he had them arrested, had them beaten, sometimes was able to convince that they should be put to death. And once he'd done all he figured he could do in Jerusalem, he says, I, I hear that there's some of this this heretical sect up in Damascus. And so he gets arrest warrants from the chief priest. And he's on his way to Damascus. It's 130 miles north of Jerusalem. It's a good long walk. I've been on long walks. Here's one thing I know about long walks. It gives you time to think. And if Saul of Tarsus is anything, he's a thinker. And he knows the scripture. Oh, he knows the scripture. He's got, he's got a head full of scripture and a heart full of zeal. And I know he's thinking about this problem, this heresy, this false doctrine of a crucified man being the Messiah. And he knows it's not true because you got Deuteronomy 21, 23. says that they're cursed of God. But then, you know, maybe, maybe... I don't know, I can't read his mind from this far away, but maybe he thinks, you know, well, but there is, there is that Isaiah 53 thing I'm not quite sure about. About the suffering servant that we esteem stricken and smitten of God, but he's not smitten of God. He's just bearing our transgressions. Our sins are upon him through our own violence. And what's that bit in Psalm 22 about well, David says, my hands and my feet, they pierced. But David never had his hands and feet pierced. What's he talking about? I don't know. I just know there's enough scripture in Saul that all it takes is a lightning strike of revelation and it's going to change everything. And as he nears the city of Damascus, God acts. There's a flash of light. A flash of light. He's knocked to the ground. And out of the brightness comes a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, Saul knows now that he is encountering 
God. That's why he says, who are you, Lord? It doesn't mean who are you, sir? Who are you, Kyrios? He's Greek-speaking Jews. That was the term they used for, for Yahweh. And with this flash of light brighter than the noonday sun that strikes him to the ground, he knows he's encountering what Isaiah encountered in the temple in the year King Uzziah died. When Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his road filled the temple. He knows he's encountering the one that Ezekiel encountered at the river Kibar that was all in flame and fire. He's encountering the Lord. But Saul wants to know, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And he went blind. Saul had gone from the high noon of certitude to the dark night of unknowing. Saul could no longer strut with a mean and menacing stride. He could only shuffle in the faltering steps of a man struck blind. He begins that journey, you know, he's just that mean, confident stride because he knows. And then he encounters the light. I am Jesus and he's blind and he's lost his mean and menacing stride and he shuffles in the faltering steps of a man just struck blind. Instead of marching down the road with arrogant confidence, Saul gropes his way through the darkness, needing someone to lead him by the hand. At last, Saul is making progress. Does it look like he's, you know, he's moving like this? I think I need some help here. Somebody take me by the hand. That's progress for an arrogant Pharisee like Saul. In a blinding moment of divine revelation, Saul knew that Jesus was Lord and he knew nothing else. He knew nothing else. Everything he thought he knew, he had to let go of. He knew one thing. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. He knew Jesus is Lord. That's all he knew. Saul had entered his nocturnal negation, his dark night of unknowing. Saul had been Jerusalem's Bible answer man. Hello, caller. I'm the Bible answer man. Do you have a Bible question? Yes. I'm wondering, could this Jesus of Nazareth have been the Messiah? Oh, of course not, because it says right there in Deuteronomy 21 23. A man hung upon a tree is cursed of God. Next caller, please. Saul had been Jerusalem's Bible answer man. He knew his Bible and he had all the answers, but now he didn't know anything except the one he had met by the name of Jesus in a blinding light on the road to Damascus was God. The cognitive dissonance induced by this faith and this truth was extreme to the utmost. Verse 9, for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. I don't think he was fasting. I think he was just too stunned to eat or drink. Without sight, he sees nothing. The only thing he knows is the thing that was told him. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. 
He knows Jesus is Lord. That's all he knows. And he's too stunned to even eat or drink for three days. Saul's theological world had, Saul's theological world had been suddenly and totally deconstructed. Now Saul sees nothing. He's blind. He knows nothing. Nothing makes sense. So what does Saul do during his three days of darkness? We're told. He prayed. What does he pray? I'm sure he's simply praying the prayers. He doesn't trust himself to do his own praying. He's praying the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. He's praying the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai, Eloheinu. He's praying, he's, he's praying the Shema. He's praying the Psalms. When you can't pray, at least say your prayers. He doesn't trust himself with his own words, so he leans into the ancient words of the ancient prayers. In Damascus, there is a believer by the name of Ananias. Jesus comes to Ananias and says, oh, you may have heard of Saul of Tarsus. Oh, yeah, I've heard of him. He's bad news. Well, he's praying right now. And I want you to go to him and lay hands on him so that he can see. He said, ah, I've heard that this man does terrible things to your servants, Lord. Jesus said, I know, but he's a chosen servant of mine, and I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Verse 17. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. We're going to baptize people next Sunday. Be baptized. Rethink everything and be baptized. Get on the road with Jesus. Be baptized. Sign up online or in the foyer. Be baptized. Scales fall from his eyes and he gets up and he's baptized. The moment the scales fell from Saul's eyes was his moment of full conversion. I mean, on the Damascus Road, everything's being deconstructed, devastated. He's being raised down to the, I mean, his foundation is being swept. There's only one thing left. He knows that Jesus is Lord. That's the only thing he knows. But when Ananias comes, that's when the scales fall off of his eyes and that's when he's baptized. And when do the scales fall from his eyes? When Ananias called, called Saul, brother Saul. Saul had come there to arrest and persecute and possibly put to death people like Ananias. But Ananias calls him, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus sent. Much later, Saul, who will come to know as Paul, will pen his beautiful ode to love that we know as 1 Corinthians 13. But it was at this moment when Ananias calls him brother that he first saw the supremacy of love. Love is greater than doctrine. Love is greater than having all the answers. Love is greater than zeal. Zeal. 
Love is greater than everything. As Paul would say, now abide these three, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. You see, if you think that doctrine is more important than love, you already have bad doctrine. Paul's conversion wasn't from Judaism to Christianity. He wouldn't have seen it that way because that wasn't what it was. Paul's conversion was from the zeal of religious violence to the loyalty of co-suffering love. Jesus said to Paul, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And Paul would endure suffering for the sake of his God, but he would never again inflict suffering in the name of his God. Paul had come to Damascus to violently persecute Ananias in the name of God, but now he sits at table with Ananias sharing the first meal of his new life. It is a love feast. The scales have fallen from his eyes. If anyone can understand the depths of John Newton's immortal hymn, it's the Apostle Paul. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind, but now I see. On the Damascus Road, Paul experienced a devastating deconstruction of faith. And at the table with Ananias, Paul experienced a beautiful reconstruction of faith. A dark night had led to a new dawn. And for the rest of Paul's life, he will live in the light of the single all-encompassing revelation that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. And this and this alone is the only possible foundation for Christian faith. And it's the foundation for God's house of love. And that's what I want to preach on next. The house of love, but we're going to have to wait a week for it. Today, I'll just leave you with this. No matter what dark nights of doubt you are groping through, hold on to the one thing that's given to you by revelation. Jesus is Lord. When everything else you're doubt, Jesus is Lord. Yeah, but what about Jesus is Lord? Yeah, I don't know about that, but Jesus is Lord. You hold on to that pretty soon. The scales will fall from your eyes. And you'll say, oh, I've come to a new dawn and it's beautiful. Amen. Stand with me. And let's come to the house of the Lord, the house of love, to the table of love. Let's come to the love feast that is the, the Lord's table. And receive grace in the form of bread that communicates body and wine that communicates blood. And it's all a gift. That's what we call Eucharist. It's a gift. And we give thanks for it. And it brings us life. Amen. Join with me in confessing our Christian faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now join me in 
confessing our sins and receiving the Lord's forgiveness. Most merciful God, we confess that we've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come, because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you.